Welcome back, Culture by Design listeners. It's Freddie, one of the producers of the podcast. I'm here this week with a unique episode that I hope you'll love. If you've been following along, you'll know at Leader Factor, we're all about helping our clients take the theories behind psychological safety and culture and turn them into actual practice inside their organizations. Our goal is to make our content and frameworks as actionable as possible. And that's what this episode is all about. We've taken some recent favorite practical moments from Tim and Junior and compiled them together. We will have three segments from a few different episodes, each ranging from 10 to 15 minutes. But before we get started, just a quick reminder that all of the episodes referenced today, this episode show notes, and a link to our most recent action-oriented resources, including a complete guide to psychological safety, can be found in this episode show notes at leaderfactor.com forward slash podcast. Now, let me tell you about this first segment. It comes from our episode titled Psychological Safety for Managers. Tim and Jr. will break down how a manager or a team leader can move from theory to practice with psychological safety. This segment will be approximately 15 minutes and lay the groundwork for leaders and managers working on improving psychological safety on their teams. Let's dive in. So let's talk a little bit about solution. What what should we do? If we know that there is this massive gap of knowing doing, that we're saying psychologically, psychological safety is essential, yet we're not doing it. What should we do as managers? How do we incorporate psychological safety as a manager? We're going to give you a few points. The first is to define psychological safety to the team. If you don't have shared terms and shared language, it's going to be very difficult. And so what is the definition? We say it's a culture of rewarded vulnerability. And then we define, well, what is culture? It's the way we interact. And what does reward mean? It means reinforce. And what is vulnerability? Anytime we stand to lose something, socially, politically, monetarily, and what is an act of vulnerability, asking a question, right? You start to unpack that definition. You go through it with a team. You say, okay, this is psychological safety. What don't we understand? If everyone gets on the same page, okay, now we're operating under the same assumptions. And another critical point along these same lines is to define what psychological safety is not. And this is where a lot of people miss. And this is something that we emphasize with the organizations with which we work, is what, what isn't psychological safety? Because th that may be equally important. So Tim, you want to take us through how we approach that in describing to people what psychological safety isn't? Well, we've identified, I think, some pretty consistent patterns of what it's not, but yet these are misconceptions, right? These are misconceptions where we misinterpret and we misapply psychological safety as a concept. So it's not a shield from accountability. That's number one. A lot of people think, oh, we're doing psychological safety. That means I can kind of go do what I want. Diplomatic immunity from accountability. It's not that. That's number one. Number two, it's not coddling. We're not going to roll everybody in bubble wrap. We're not going to contribute to your fragility. It's not what it's about. In fact, it's about the opposite. It's about establishing terms of engagement and conditions that allow us to have the tough conversations to be able to speak openly and honestly about issues. Three, it's not consensus decision-making. It doesn't 
magically change the decision-making model and give you a vote. Everyone now has a vote. That's not what it means. That's another misconception. It's not unearned autonomy. It doesn't magically give you autonomy that you didn't have before. Autonomy is always earned on the basis of performance and results. So it's not going to suddenly bestow autonomy on you that you didn't earn. That doesn't make any sense, but yet it's a misconception. A fifth one is it's not political correctness. It doesn't subscribe to some political agenda or policy stance or ideology, right? People try to hijack it and use it for that, kind of weaponize it for that purpose sometimes, but it's not that. Another one is what rhetorical reassurance. Junior, talk to us about this one. This one is amusing. Yeah. So rhetorical reassurance, what is that? It's rhetoric. It's just language. It's just words. We're declaring to the organization that is now psychologically safe. And that's ludicrous. Yet a lot of organizations do it. Hey, we're establishing a speak up culture. Okay, how? I don't know. We're just, we just told you that we are. So it's safe now. So we want your feedback. And how many of us have been asked for feedback, yet the environment did not support the giving of feedback? Probably all of us can raise our hands. So you can't just declare psychological safety or a healthy culture into existence. And I love the word reassurance, right? Oh, no, it's okay. It's safe here. Don't worry, right? It's going to be okay. Just give us your feedback. That does not work with organizations, but it's very easy to do. And so I think that that's why we often fall into the trap is what? It's just a big communication plan, just a, a, an email, you know, an all hands meeting, you know, hey, that's pretty fast. And take me five minutes to explain that, hey, we want to speak up culture. So, you know, go ahead. And from here on out, we want your feedback. Doesn't work. It's disingenuous yeah. to approach an organization like that, because if you're a leader, you're responsible for conditions. And what you're doing is you've abdicated your responsibility to create the conditions that are conducive for people to provide the honest feedback. And you're trying to do it by fiat, right? You're trying to decree it into existence. That's not integrity. So I, I think that's a pretty big issue when leaders approach organizations that way. Well, and it's safe to say that it's worse if you do it that way than if you didn't declare it at all because people see that it's duplicitous. Yeah. So that is the first step. Define psychological safety to the team, define what it is not so that you have shared terms and same language, same shared language. Number two is to set clear expectations. So this is the rule setting phase. What's allowed here? What are the terms of engagement? How are we going to work together? So one of the ways that we do this with teams and organizations is additional definition. We'll say red zones are environments of punished vulnerability. Blue zones are environments of rewarded vulnerability. And here in this team, we're not going to tolerate red zone behavior. So we're not going to tolerate personal attacks. We're not going to tolerate any sort of put down culture. We're not going to tolerate off color jokes. We're not going to tolerate, you know, this and this and this. We expect professionalism, we expect this, we expect this, and setting those terms of engagement. Because if you don't, then what standard are people beholden to? Now, there is none. 
right? And these norms just emerge and people kind of figure it out by trying to figure out where the lines are. It becomes very murky. And guess what also becomes really hard? Accountability. If you don't have clear terms of engagement, really, really difficult to hold people accountable because it's to what are we held accountable? Not sure. Not sure. Yeah. Hard to have that conversation. That's right. The standard's not clear. Next, we have enforce the expectation. So after we set the expectations, if we don't enforce them, we've got a problem. So we need that accountability piece. And Tim, you and I were talking earlier about the fact that we're not coming to this from zero. It's not tabula rasa every time. It's not like we're spinning up new teams. These teams are going to come with some norms. They're going to come with some habits. They're going to come with an existing culture. And anytime we learn something, almost by definition, we need to unlearn something. And so there may be some unlearning that has to go on before we can institutionalize the new norms that we want, right? That's very true. And so what that means is we have to identify the cultural liabilities that exist in the legacy culture. What are the norms that need to change? And and so we got to do, we may need to do a little cut and pasting, some restorative work, some root cause analysis and corrective action, but that's what needs to happen. And that's not easy because there's an equilibrium that has developed around the existing norms, right? Let's just go back through, Junior, the, the anatomy of a culture. So a pattern of behavior in an individual is a habit. A pattern of shared behavior with a team, right? So let's say there are eight people on the team and we have a, a pattern of behavior that we share. That's a norm. The collection of our norms becomes a culture. So we have habits, we have norms, and then we have a culture. The culture is the collection of the norms. So if we need to change the culture, which is what we're talking about doing here, then we need to go back down and we need to change norms. And then we need to go all the way down to an individual level if we're holding people accountable. And we need to change patterns of behavior at the individual level. It really does come back to enforcing those expectations. There has to be accountability at that level. And that accountability has to be terribly consistent. It has to be the same every single time for every single person without variation. Otherwise, you're going to get variability in the system. And with accountability, that's not something that you want. You're the one that likes to say it. Uh, what you tolerate, you normalize. I love that. Yeah, I believe that to my bones. And that's true at an individual level, right? What you tolerate in yourself is what will repeat. That is a fact. I've never seen that not be true at the level of the individual, a team, or an organization. You will get what you tolerate, and what you tolerate will repeat. And so let's say that you tolerate a personal attack. What's going to happen again in the future? A personal attack, right? Let's say that you tolerate, you know, insert behavior, insert undesirable behavior, you tolerate that, it's going to happen again. And so it's your responsibility as a leader to patrol the boundaries of respect more than anything else. We talk about stage one inclusion safety. You are owed that respect. You are owed a degree of permission to participate in what we're doing as a team. And if someone encroaches on that boundary, hey, careful someone passes that boundary, 
there needs to be accountability. And that is your job. That is also something that you cannot delegate as a leader. You can't say, oh, you know, someone else go just patrol the boundaries, right? And just let me know. No, no, that's your job. You can't abdicate that. Next is live the expectations, live the rules yourself. You are not immune from them. It's not just that everyone on the team needs to abide by these principles. You do too. And you need to model the appropriate behavior. And that goes all the way back to modeling the acts of vulnerability. And there are many, many behavioral guide items inside of the document that we will put in the show notes. If you haven't looked at that, there's a new version that we released. It's really, really good. But this will give you an idea of some things that you can do to start. But here's one. Share your story. Share your story. That's an act of vulnerability. And maybe your team doesn't know your story. Who are you? Where did you come from? That's an interesting place to start. So if you haven't done that, maybe do that. It's an idea for you. And then there's another angle here, which we've discussed before, Tim, moments of truth. So tell us a little bit about moments of truth and what that has to do with living the expectations that, that we've set for the team. If it's crucial to live the expectations, not just enforce the expectations, but you need to live, model the expectations, then at what moments is that most important? And, and we would say, well, there are these moments of truth where it, the stakes are high, emotions are running high, and your response is going to reverberate throughout the team, throughout the organization. Your behavior, your modeling behavior is going to have a massive influence on people. So think about those moments of truth. How do you handle them? What is your emotional response to dissent and bad news? Are you composed? Are you poised? Are you demonstrating emotional intelligence? Are you demonstrating humility? Are you still listening? Are you still asking questions? Or have you gone headlong into a, mo a directive mode, an advocacy mode, a mode of not listening, right? So all of these things come into play when we have an important moment of truth where the stakes are so high and you know that whatever happens is going to travel in the organization. It's going to reverberate. It's going to ripple through. And so you, you've got to handle those moments of truth really, really well. One of the ways that you can become better at this is through practice. Now, you don't know when that dissent and that bad news is going to come, when those moments of truth will show themselves. But when they do, try to create some space between that moment of truth and your response and identify it, call it out and say, okay, this is a moment of truth. Here it is. And then be intentional about your response. Okay, how I respond to the situation is going to matter and it's going to set precedent for the team. And then say, okay, I'm going to approach this with real intent. I'm gonna try and do a good job and I'm gonna be humble while I do it. If you can create space just for a couple seconds to identify that moment of truth and then try to pre-program that response, you'll be much better off. Because what do we normally want to do when we hear dissent and bad news is have an equal and opposite reaction that's instantaneous and just go right back into it but try and create some space. That'll be really helpful. Okay, last one. Reward the vulnerability of others. And this is the crux of the issue. 
if you don't reward the vulnerability of other people, you're not going to continue to get their vulnerability. And what their vulnerability will be coming in the form of what? It may not look like vulnerability on the front end. It may not be what people would typically call vulnerable, but it's going to come as questions. It's going to come as feedback. It's going to come as information. And you have to be very careful with how you treat that. Psychological safety is a culture of rewarded vulnerability. That's the mechanism by which we increase or decrease psychological safety is that response to vulnerability. So your ratio should be pegged out on the reward side if you're a leader, especially because you're setting the norms for that team. One of the things that we like to do as an organization is help leaders understand and team members understand for each other what's vulnerable for them. So as a team activity this week, you're welcome to use the free ladder of vulnerability on the website. It's a self-assessment. It's 20 items. It takes literally five minutes. We'll put a link to that in the show notes. But it's a really cool activity to show you what's vulnerable for each team member and how to effectively reward their acts of vulnerabilities. If you do it generally and blanket, it's not as effective as if you understand each individual where they're at and how you might engage with them to better respond to their feedback and questions. I hope you enjoyed that segment. You may have heard Junior reference the behaviors inside our behavioral guide and the idea of modeling and rewarding vulnerability. In this next segment, we will build off that concept by taking a few moments from our Psychological Safety in Practice series. There are four episodes in this series, one for each of the four stages, inclusion safety, learner safety, contributor safety, and challenger safety. We've pulled one behavior from each of those episodes to share with you today. Now let's dive into real practical behaviors. Okay, number two, ask twice as much as you tell. This is the second behavior. DJ Kaufman said this, wisdom is the reward for a lifetime of listening when you'd have preferred to talk. I really like this quote. Wisdom is the reward for a lifetime of listening when you'd have preferred to talk. And this goes right in line with asking twice as much as you tell. Each of us has a personal inquiry and advocacy ratio. Usually when we're speaking or we're listening, we're doing one of these two things. We're inquiring and then we're sitting back listening to what the person has to say, or we're advocating. And what I have found is I have tried to ratchet back my ratio because it was skewed heavy advocacy and lean more into inquiry. And I think each of us have tendencies. We tend toward one end. And many of us just open our mouths and start advocating where we should be asking and then listening with this mode of inquiry. And so this is another one of my favorite behaviors why I put it on this list. I think it's awesome. Tim, what do you think about this one? I love it. In order to get better, though, Junior, you've got to engage in some, I guess, some metacognition. You've got to be really aware of yourself. Yeah, you do. And you've got to monitor yourself and you've got to say, okay, am I in inquiry mode right now or am I in advocacy mode right now? And you've got to check yourself several times during the day to monitor that and then try to intentionally make adjustments. And I think. For many of us, it's moving a little bit more, as you say, to inquiry and enjoying the rewards and the benefits of that. Well, think about, let's say you're in a team of five people and everyone's ratio is like 
one to five inquiry advocacy, right? Like what happens? You just have all these people running around frantically advocating for their position and nothing happens. Well, I think we see what that looks like, Junior, is people are just talking over each other. Yeah. And it's not quality dialogue. It's not quality collaboration. It's pretty frustrating because everyone it wants the airtime. Everyone wants the oxygen. Yeah. And you may have a relationship where the one person, you know, is really heavy inquiry almost by force because the advocacy on the other end is so harsh. And so I think it's important to monitor that in our relationships and our teams to see where we land. So this one I really, really love. And there's a challenge with this one, too, that we would extend to all of you, which is to monitor your interactions tomorrow and write down a ratio at the end of the day of asking and telling. What was your inquiry versus advocacy ratio that day? If you do that, I think it's a very helpful awareness exercise. And if you can do it across time, let's say that you did that every day for a day or for a week straight, that at the end of the day, you wrote down, today I was two to one, I was one to one, I was three to one. That will help bring awareness to this. You'll start thinking about it in the act of engaging with people. And it may lead you to ask a question when you would have normally made a statement. And so that's something that I would extend as an invitation to everyone. Tim, any final thoughts about that behavior? Yes, I have friends that have ratios, some friends that have ratios of, it's like one to 10 inquiry versus advocacy. And I love them, but I can only take them in small doses because I know that when I spend time with them, I simply have to listen. And, and I love listening, right? So that puts me, so my ratio when I'm with them is 100% inquiry and zero advocacy, <laughs> right? I'm, which is fantastic, but you can't do that all the time. And it's not a sustainable mode of interacting with another person or sustaining a relationship. But it just, it's interesting to reflect on people that have ratios like that. It's exhausting after a while. And so then that makes me think about myself. Wow, Tim, are you, where's your ratio? And are you making it hard on others? Have you shifted enough to inquiry and compassionate curiosity asking them questions, being a good listener. So it really makes me think because of the way that I feel after I've had uh, some time with one of these friends. I love them, but, you know, they talk and you listen. Number three, identify and share what you unlearn. What you unlearn. So this is different from the first one, share what you're learning. Identify and share what you unlearn. This is a difficult process. It requires a lot of mental energy and effort to go through your, your store, your stock of knowledge on something, synthesize it, distill it out, reduce it, and say, okay, what really works? What do I need to hang on to? What doesn't? And because the process involves challenging assumptions, maybe upending conventional wisdom, challenging the status quo of the things that you've learned, right? So you're exercising, you're challenging the status quo within yourself based on your own experience. And you're coming to some new conclusions. 
And so this requires some moral courage as well, Junior, because you may have to walk something back. Yeah. You may have to change your mind. You have to be prepared to be wrong. Are you willing to do that? That's not easy for most people. So think about what it entails to be able to identify and then share. Those are two different things. They're related, but identify and then share what you unlearn. That means that you've undergone a personal transformation or at least some kind of realization or epiphany to get you to that point. It means that you've been challenging yourself. You've been disrupting yourself. You've been upending yourself and you've come to a new conclusion. It takes moral courage. And then you're going to, you're going to share that. Well, think about the risk associated with sharing something that you've unlearned. You may think to yourself, well, I'm risking losing my own credibility, my own stature, my own reputation. What are people going to think about me? I've changed my mind. I'm walking something back. I was wrong. I've learned a, a better way to do something. So there are risks associated with doing this, both step one and step two in this process. But when you do it, wow, talk about powerful and talk about empowering and enabling your colleagues, right? Think about how infrequently you probably see people do this. That is evidence of how hard it is. You don't see a lot of people doing this, especially in positions of power and influence, authority. You rarely see people change their minds. If you do see them change their minds, it's, you know, because of something, some extenuating circumstance, like, oh, you know, I was oblivious to this really important piece of information. It was someone else's fault. Now I have it and I changed my mind. That's how it often goes. Yeah. So what if you could do it differently? What might that look like and what effect might it have? Hey, I saw the report that you sent over yesterday. And I know we had discussed that issue at great lengths, and I was really strong about the direction I wanted to go. But now I see this a little bit differently. Yeah, I've been wrestling with it, and I think you're right. In fact, I'm convinced you're right. So thank you for sending that over. I appreciate the new information, and I'd like to move forward with your point of view and see what we can do. Right? How far does that go? It goes really far for people because you're saying, hey, look, once again, it's an admission of ignorance. I don't know everything. There are some things out there that if I knew, I would change my mind, right? There might be some data out there. There might be some perspective. There might be an opinion from someone. And all of that is reasonable grounds to change Mm -hmm. your mind. Now, Mm -hmm. you have to be careful with this and you want to do appropriate due diligence on the the front end before you give an opinion, but it's okay to get new information, to change your mind. It's okay to change your mind with existing information. You may not even get anything new. You just may think about it a little bit longer and decide that you were wrong. Mm -hmm. But our tendency is to double down, to die on the hill. That's right. And I've seen this in myself many times before. Where, yeah, you know, like I took a pretty, a pretty strong point of view. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, it may not look good if I turn. Yeah. So I better just stay right here and stick that's to right. my guns, that's even right. though, you know, I'm not entirely sure that that's the best thing to do. 
That's exactly right. So it it is a moral capacity to identify and share what you unlearn. Yeah. But when you do it, it's very powerful. And then when it becomes a pattern or a habit at an individual level, it becomes an accelerator to your own learning and an accelerator in generating stage two learner safety for those around you. Number three, let them do it their way. Peter Drucker said, the only way to get the best out of people is to give them the opportunity to do their best. Now, this may seem like a funky quote that's slightly adjacent, that's off topic. It's not right on the money. Let me explain why I put this in here. Opportunities for people to do their best, like Drucker said, those are going to be risky for the organization. Autonomy is risk. We're ratcheting up the risk when we ratchet up the autonomy. That's right. Now, if people have a demonstrated, a proven track record of delivering results, which is why they got that autonomy in the first place, then we should be pretty confident. That does not minimize the risk. The risk is still there. And so that's why I think that this is so important when we're saying let people do it their way. We're saying give them the autonomy to do their best work. And if you do that, you'll get the best out of the people doing the work. So that's the connection that I think is so important here is that let them do it their way sounds nice at first blush. Like, yeah, that's great. But that's risky for organizations, which is often why they take away the autonomy. They start micromanaging because we feel like that's the way we need to mitigate the risk and get done what we need to get done. Precisely the opposite. We have to be willing to take on that risk, put trust and faith in the people to go out there and do their best and figure out how to do it. But the only way that this works is if you have high accountability, high autonomy people. If you don't have that and you have not developed that, you have no choice but to ratchet down the risk by taking away the autonomy. So this is why the people are so, so, so important. So get good people, I guess, is antecedent. Mm-hmm. And then, okay, let them do it their way after that's true. That's right. So opportunities for people to do their best work. There are a few examples of this that I think are pretty cool. So here's one from Lockheed Martin is a skunk works project. I didn't know this. The SR-71 Blackbird was done in a skunk works environment. No, I didn't know that. Yeah, I didn't know this. So the SR-71 Blackbird, you've probably seen this plane. You may not know it by name, but I'm sure you've seen it at least in a picture. It's a successor to the U-2 spy plane. Mm -hmm. This thing can reach 2,200 miles per hour. It can fly above 85,000 feet. Now, it's no longer in operation, but This was incredible in manned reconnaissance. This was like the coolest thing that had ever happened in aviation. I remember the first time I used to have cards of military airplanes, long time ago. And I remember the first time I saw, there were two of them that were my favorite, the SR-71 Blackbird and the Nighthawk. I thought these are the two coolest planes that I have ever seen. And the Blackbird, that speed, like it's crazy. So forgive me fanboying of the Blackbird, but this comes out of Skunk Works. So how did that come to be? By giving good people an opportunity to do their best. They were given autonomy with guidance Mm -hmm. and they gave you the SR-71 Blackbird. Those are results. 
And so would the SR-71 be a thing if they had not been given the autonomy in a skunk no environment? Yeah, no, no way. No, it wouldn't. Another example is Google's 20% time. Now, this may be less commonly practiced today, but Gmail is a product of Google's 20% time. You say, hey, 20% of the time, you can work on whatever project you want to work on. Yeah. What would the world be like if Google hadn't got into email? It would be different. It would be very different today. Well, so what, Junior, we also have to acknowledge that Google has taken a, a lot of other moonshots that didn't pan out. They didn't work, right? Oh, yeah. So we have to acknowledge that, but that's part of managing risk. That's part of granting people the autonomy in exchange for the performance. That's part of this whole process that we have to go through. Remember that we're talking about challenger safety in practice, behaving until we believe. And so we want to approach the change behaviorally. So we're not going to say, hey, here are three things to be aware of. We're going to say, hey, here are three things to go and do. Yeah. And that's the big difference here. So go and take these three things we're going to talk about today, try them out and see if they work for you. So the first one, here's the behavior, weigh in last. Weigh in last. Why did we choose this as the first one? Well, if you weigh in first, what happens? You anchor the team, especially if you're in a position of power. If you have an authority position in a room, and you weigh in first on whatever the issue is. It could be what product tweak you're going to make. It could be where you're going for lunch. If you weigh in first, you anchor the entire discussion. And this one, I think, is one of the most difficult for some leaders to do because they feel like it's part of their role. Mm -hmm. They almost feel like it's in their job description to give an opinion first. Well, I'm the leader. I must have to know. Well, guess what? You don't have to know. And even if you do, you need to let your team do its thing because there's probably some information that you're missing. There's probably some context that you don't have. So it's important that we let the solution emerge through conversation and take an appropriate stance in the background. Just step back for a minute and let the team do its thing. What do you think about this one, Tim? Well, Junior, when you said that if you weigh in first, you anchor your team, you anchor your team with bias. That's the first thing you're doing. And you are softly censoring your team. And there's the presumption that the discussion is over because you possess positional power and you've registered your point of view. That's not a very wise thing to do. Yeah. Right. In, in terms of group dynamics, when there are power differentials in the room, yeah. And we understand who has a uh, decision-making authority. So it's just not a wise thing to do. Yep. So here are some practical tips and tricks to put this behavior in place of weighing in last. Mirror the team and summarize the discussion to that point the way that you would if you're talking one-on-one. -on -one. Now, this is something that I found to be really effective. So we, we hear about active listening and we hear about mirroring, right? Someone might say, oh, you know, I've had, you know, the toughest day and this is what happened. And one effective way to help them understand that we're tuned in and listening to what they're saying is to repeat that back to them, to summarize what they've told us so they know that we understand. You can do this for groups. So here's a line for you. From what I've heard, here's how I might summarize where we are. 
let's say that you go ahead and you listen as this conversation develops inside of the team for 10, 15 minutes, you're debating an issue. Then you come in and say, okay, from what I've heard everyone say, here's how I might summarize where we are. What did I miss? And so you're doing a few things here. You're acknowledging everyone's opinion, but you're also consolidating the information so that it's actionable and you can continue the conversation in a productive way. And you're not softly censoring. You're just reflecting Mm -hmm. back to the team. Hey, here's what I hear everyone saying, right? Who else has a comment about this? What else are we missing? And if you can do that and become more tactful in that dialogue with the team, will be much more effective and challenger safety will go up. People will feel like they can jump in and continue to converse without feeling like there's risk. I would say, again, weighing in first, unfortunately, is a chronic problem for many leaders. Even though, Junior, they know intuitively that they need to weigh in last, they just can't resist that urge to jump in. So for you listeners out there who struggle with this, think carefully about the ramifications and about the unintended consequences when you weigh in first, how you softly censor, how you anchor your team with bias, how you basically throw sand in the gears of collaboration. Think about that. And you may be, you may find yourself motivated in a new and different way. So I would say, what do you do? Lead with inquiry at the beginning, not advocacy. Get out of advocacy mode and get into inquiry mode. Use questions. And then you can advocate at the very end when you're trying to synthesize things and come to a point of view and take a course of action, right? I hope you enjoyed that segment and each of the behaviors that were shared and that you're starting to think more about how to move from theory to practice with psychological safety and improving culture. Now, before you get caught up, though, in trying to memorize a list of all behaviors that improve psychological safety, this last segment will walk you through what we call the LIVE model. This model is a way for you to remember to practice looking for, modeling, and rewarding acts of vulnerability. In a way, it's a framework that teaches you to slow down and appreciate others for the unique contributions they make. Here it is. Let's dive into a practical tool. We know the areas that need work. We've talked about each of the four stages. Now let's dive into application. We have a model that is based on the acronym LIVE. We call it the LIVE model. And the L in LIVE stands for look. What are we looking for? We're looking for acts of vulnerability. The mechanism on which all of this hinges is whether vulnerability is punished or rewarded. And so this tool is aimed at rewarding vulnerability. In order to reward vulnerability, we first have to look for it. So we're going to look for acts of vulnerability. And those happen all day, every day. Someone introduces themselves, active vulnerability. Someone asks a question, vulnerable. Someone shares a preference, vulnerable. Someone shares their opinion. That's an act of vulnerability. So we're looking around and then we see those things, we identify them and we say, oh, there's one. That was an act of vulnerability. So that's step two, right, Junior? Exactly. That's the I and live, identify. When someone asks a sincere question, identify that and recognize that. Here's how that might play out. If you ask me a sincere question, I might say, hey, I realized that was probably a big jump for you to tell me that, especially considering our history. 
Think about this in your personal relationships. And obviously this applies more broadly, but that's what we're talking about today is personal relationships. So we're looking around. Think about your relationships, right? Have a few names in your brain, people you interact with all the time. Think about them and your interactions every day and look, look at those interactions, look at what they're doing and then identify those acts of vulnerability. What's the V in live, Tim? It's to validate. So we look, we identify the acts of vulnerability real time when they happen. And then the V is to validate. We validate the person that is engaging in that act of vulnerability so they feel seen and heard and understood. We're validating them as a human being in that very act. So here's some language along the lines of validate. Hey, it was so helpful for me to see your point of view. And I probably would have missed that if you hadn't said anything. That's one of the ways that validation can look in a real interaction. So we say, hey, I realized that was a big jump for you. That was vulnerable. And then it was very helpful for me that you did that. I appreciate that. I would have missed something. And then the E in live is encourage. We want to encourage that act so that it happens again. Hey, please keep sharing those types of things with me. I really do appreciate it. I don't know what I don't know. And I really value your point of view. So let's say that I do those three things. I say those three things using the live model. What do you think the likelihood is of that person giving me feedback of that nature in the future? It's high because they came to me with something, right? It's vulnerable. They're like, hey, you know, junior, this is not going very well, or I don't like the way that you did this thing. And I'm like, okay, hey, thank you for telling me that. That helped me see this. I'd appreciate if you could do that in the future because I'm trying to get better and any feedback that you bring like that helps. So thank you for doing that. And the person bringing the feedback's like, okay, all right. So like, this is how this is gonna go, right on, awesome. And then how likely is that person to then engage with you the same way when you have a piece of feedback for them? And you can see how this compounds over time in these personal relationships. And if a group of people or two people can engage with each other using that mechanism, it's going to be so much better for everyone involved. Now, we're not going to bat a thousand, right? I'm not going to do that perfectly every time someone comes with feedback, but the closer I stay to that live model, the better. And it's so simple. That's why I love this model so much, the acronym LIVE. Just think about that. And hopefully it's hard for you to forget. Uh, In case it's easy to forget. We'll go ahead and put the model in the show notes too. You can download it and put it on your desk, right? Put it somewhere that you see it as a reminder. Uh, This has been, I was going to say terribly helpful. I think that's what I mean. It's been terribly helpful in the best way. Sometimes it hurts, but it's been amazing. Yeah. Let's just go back through the steps again, Junior, just for people. So L, uh, look, look around, look at the interactions, look at the social dynamics around you. Then identify, identify an act of vulnerability that should be rewarded. And you'll notice that they're happening all the time all around you. But the trick here is to identify them in the moment, real time without a lag, right? So that's step two. And then we go to V for validate. We're going to validate that person so they feel seen, heard, and understood. And then finally, encourage We want to encourage them to engage in these vulnerable activities, these vulnerable behaviors 
in the future. Keep doing this. Let's make this a norm. Let's make this a pattern. Let's make this consistent. And if you do that, as you said, Junior, for others, you're giving them evidence. You're giving them a data set that says, oh, if I engage in this vulnerable behavior again, there's a high probability that I will be rewarded for doing that. I'm going to do that. So that risk-reward calculation becomes easy for them because it's been normalized. It's a norm. It's a prevailing norm in your relationship. And if that can be the case, think about where that relationship will go. It becomes healthy. It becomes strong. It becomes resilient. This is what you want in that relationship. It becomes deeply satisfying. The compensation that you derive from that relationship becomes amazing. I think about the beginning of our conversation today and talking about trust. And a huge element of trust, as I see it, is predictability. You can't trust someone who's unpredictable. And you can't trust someone's reaction if it's not predictable. So think about that as it relates to rewarding vulnerability. If you want someone to trust you, you want to trust someone, then this needs to be predictable. They need to know with a high degree of confidence that I already know what's going to happen if I bring this piece of feedback. I already know because it's happened a thousand times and 999 of those times, it's gone this way. And if you don't have that, let's say that your batting average isn't as good, that will be difficult and that will bear out in your relationships. And so we need to move that ratio as far as we can to rewarding that vulnerability every time. Sometimes it will be easy, sometimes it will be very, very, very difficult. Hey, Culture by Design listeners, this is the end of today's episode. You can find all the important links from today's episode at leaderfactor.com forward slash podcast. And if you found today's episode helpful and useful in any way, please share with a friend and leave a review. If you'd like to learn more about Leader Factor and what we do, then please visit us at leaderfactor.com. Lastly, if you'd like to give any feedback to the Culture by Design podcast or even request a topic from Tim and Jr., then reach out to us at info at leaderfactor.com or find and tag us on LinkedIn. Thanks again for listening and making culture something you do by design, not by default. Thank you.